0: It's not human intelligence! If someone doesn't value logical consistency, what logical argument are you going to give them that will demonstrate that they should? Hey everybody, this is Dan, just dropping in to give you a little bit of information about what you're going to listen to. This is just a quick bonus episode of a recent talk that was delivered by Megan Kennedy for Atheists of Utah. I apologize for some of the audio. We held the talk at a local pub And because of that, there's a lot of background noise, dishes clanging, people talking in the background in other parts of the pub. But I cleaned up the audio pretty well, so you can hear Megan really well. Wanted to release this as kind of a primer for having Megan on our next episode, which we'll be recording on Tuesday, and that will be our Halloween episode. We're going to be talking about her talk, which I know is meta. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we'll be doing that. We will also be joined by, I believe, Mr. Chris Reed, or X from the Utah Outcasts podcast. We'll also have our most recent episode with our guest Phil Ferguson available to you very shortly, probably within the next day or two, maybe. I'm trying to get that out as soon as I can. I've had a lot of editing that I've had to do recently. Three things lined up, and we shifted our recording days, so I've fallen a little bit behind with getting all of this out to you, but hopefully... You enjoy this talk from Megan, and look forward to hearing her on our upcoming Halloween episode. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy. I don't want to take up any more time, so I will turn it over to the fabulous Megan Kennedy, but thank you all very much for coming
1: out. Yeah, thanks for being here, guys. Hey. Thanks, guys, for coming. Um, So my name is Megan Kennedy. I run what's called the Religious Education Series. So we started this this year. I work with the Satanic Temple um, it's kind of an allyship where we don't have a chapter here anymore, but we're just trying to keep the Satanic Temple. We still got members, we still got people interested in what we're doing, and so um, this is kind of a, just a little alliance we do where I get to, I write talks, we get together. I've, tra- I've been trying to do them a couple every couple of months, but you know it just depends on the research. So we've done this. I think is our fourth um, brand new talk. Um, next week is going to be we're going to do one on uh, spirit and demonic possession. It's going to be at the library downtown. So if you want to come to that, it's free. Um, it'll be later in the afternoon at 2 p.m. downstairs in the conference rooms, just down the, uh, when you walk in the main floor, it's downstairs. So feel free to come out to that. Um, we're going to talk about, it's called the Crucible of Goodness today. So what I'm going to introduce you to is um, <laughs> cultural boundaries, is what we're going to talk about. Um, culture sets our basic boundaries, and religion is a huge influence on culture. There's no vacuum for any artistic or genre expression to live in, and nothing exists outside the pole of the influence of culture. When we acknowledge that reality, it allows us to deconstruct the patterns that show up in things like our media. Um, We're gonna trace them back to our sources and illustrate how culture gives us the building blocks for which we create our art. So um, I know everybody's eating, which is really awesome. I do have uh, some slides that are a little horrific because they're horror movies. Hopefully they're not too bad with the, never done this in front of people eating before, so I hope they're not too bad. Um, Spoiler alert, shouldn't be too bad. Most of the movies I'm using are a little older, so hopefully everybody's at least a little familiar with them, but we will be talking in depth about some plots and let me know if I'm in your guys' way, because I kind of can't tell if I'm blocking your screen here. So the title of this talk is taken from this quote from The Exorcist. Uh, perhaps evil is the crucible of goodness, and perhaps Satan, in spite of himself, somehow works out to serve the will of God. Uh, in context, the priests are discussing the ramifications of possession, and Father Marin remarks that possession is meant to destroy everyone around the possessed, not just the victim, but that ultimately the demon was only going to drive back people back to God. Who loves us despite our base animalistic nature, and, and this is <clears throat> that the demon is reflecting. This is the argument that I'm going to make today for the horror genre, which is that despite its a whory, its a, excuse me, ugly, terrifying, gory appearance, it's in fact it's serving out the will of a Christian God. So the horror genre, as a genre, began in the Gothic and Victorian traditions of isolated hauntings and familial madness. These earlier horror tales were typically confined to an escapable location, a castle, a monastery, which is actually the word origin of the word Gothic. It comes from an architectural style. Um, or it can be also connected to a person through a haunting. Uh, the Castle of Otranto, Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, The Turn of the Screw are just a few of the most well-known examples of this early genre. But in the past century, the horror genres had to mutate in order to account for modern anxieties like globalization, uh, advancements in technology, advancements in knowledge. And in doing so, it's had to expand and cross previously taboo boundaries that gothic horror traditions just couldn't even approach. After all, gothic horror is kind of considered romantic nowadays. Um, the Victorian authors would never have approached fear on the scale of Matheson or Lovecraft or even Stephen King at this point. So a lot could be learned about a society by examining what we fear. It gives us insight into the particular boundaries that have shaped culture. It can tell us who is or historically been in power and show us how they've maintained that power. So for example, the foundation myth of Rome, people have probably heard about the twin twins Remus and Romulus who were raised by a she-wolf. Uh, we have historical and archaeological evidence that shows that the original story was actually only had one brother. Uh, Remus was actually added in the 3rd century BC about the time that Rome was splitting up into its two-tiered class system of Plebeians and Patricians. So basically what happened is they had to shake up their foundation myth in order to account for this new social structure. So the story of Rome had to change to include this, and they had to include ancient tradition to reinforce their class system. And all stories could also potentially reflect a literal, real-life happening. Um, It could be not a metaphorical danger that they're trying to warn you of. Um, for example, a lot of dragon myths, um, when you talk about fire coming out of burrows, dragons protecting treasure, and then you look at the burial practices of people in the places there where these um, dragon myths, especially in medieval England, are coming from. Um, burying people in caves traps up all the gases of decomposition. It's really easy to light those on fire. There's also a lot of grave goods that you put in to these cave things. So when you set up a spark in a cave and fire comes out and you make up a, a legend about it, Um, There is a lot of gold actually buried with those things, then it's really easy to put together a dragon myth or a myth of something guarding this treasure, right? So it could reflect the literal reality people are facing. In the modern West, Christianity is what sets the majority of our virtues and of our norms, and so it therefore set up the taboo lands into which the horror genre ventures. We know historically that America, seeing America as a Christian society, isn't really an accurate thing. There's a lot of nuance to it. However, um, Europeans were raised in a Christian-dominated society, and so those are the boundaries they brought over when they started America. Evil as we know it, the idea of pure, unchangeable evil, is not a universal or eternal idea. Pagan traditions in pre-monotheistic Europe and Asia drew different boundaries, and they had different explanations for why bad things happen in the world, which is basically what evil is doing, is answering that question. They often had antagonistic relationships with their gods, acknowledging that they were powerful and that the gods existed, but they also resented the power and their constant meddling in human lives. Um, For one day, Zeus could be offering help to the people of ancient Greece, and the next day he's causing storms and chasing women around. Um, They're very human. Uh, Pagan gods didn't have a claim on perfection in the same way as we think about it with especially a monotheistic or Christian god, and so it allowed pagans' room to explain bad things without having to create the concept of evil. Uh, The transition to a monotheistic worldview, that is, one god, really affected our way, the way we have ideas of evil. By changing the causes of a willful world from pantheons into a single, omniscient deity who's flawless, uh, humans in nature become more alienated from what we call the Numinos, this idea of a supernatural, it can be God, angels, spirits, however you wanna fill that in. But it it distances you from that because no matter what, bad things are gonna happen, and if your philosophy or your theology doesn't have a way to explain that, uh, it's it's gonna have a bad time. Pagans understood that the dualistic nature of their gods brought both joy and suffering, just like humans do, just like we all endure. But Christian God, by definition, cannot provide suffering. He's perfect. Uh, In City of God, which is a foundational Western philosophical text by Augustine from the Christian church, declares that, quote, no nature is at all evil, and that believers have to hold faith that there's always a hidden utility or a reason for everything, even the most horrific disasters, which we all know are terrible. But how long can a perfect God really take the heat for the world's evils? And the answer is he really can't, and that's why Christianity created... Lucifer and his demons and the concept of pure evil to fill in this chasm. Attributing all destruction and horrible things to a peaceful, omniscient God is a tiring philosophical prospect, but if you attribute it to a dark outside force, that it's powerful but will never really beat God, it's a lot more comfortable. So what makes a deity evil is a good question. The difference between Lucifer and Hades, for example, even though they get conflated a lot, there's actually a lot of non-incidental differences between them. Lucifer's entire identity is as God's enemy. He exists only to cause suffering to sinners, which again is ironically serving out God's will. But Hades has a more complex purpose in mythology. He has nuanced relationships with mortals and immortals in the environment. He has an unne- uh, he's considered necessary even if he's unpleasant. Uh, it's a part of existence, death, right? He doesn't represent any moral position or authority. He has altruistic qualities in myths. He He's not always doing bad shit in the mythology that he comes from. His relationship to evil is based only on the idea that death is evil, which is also a very Christian and monotheistic idea. Not everybody considers death evil or bad. But part of Christian moral ideas includes an erasure or a vilification of parts of, of, that are arguably foundations of what it means to be human. And we see this every day. If you're a part of the LGBTQ community, you're expected to hide it or pray it out and figure it out to conform. If you're a non-compliant woman, you're going to be taught that you're betraying the foundations of family and God and even country and expected again to conform. There's little room in Christianity for even everyday emotions like despair or pride or hopelessness, which every human has to endure. So in negating what is part of what is part of it, the world becomes like what it negates. So in different terms, what we negate about ourselves does not vanish. It becomes our negated self, our non-being. So it's another way to say our non-being is what we consider our evil. Those things we hide about ourselves psychologically become evil. So we see a little bit about how our culture is determined... By those boundaries, and how I want to, and how Christianity is the the structure, the theological structure, the philosophical structure that set up most of our boundaries. Um, but I want to talk about three specific areas of horror movies and tropes, and we're going to go into detailed examples and show how Christianity has worked behind the scenes to establish these tropes. Um, these aren't all the influence or examples of Christian influence, um, but they're for me. they are three of the biggest ones that show up a lot, and probably the most noticeable. I think so. We have got the Final Girl. Uh, vilification of paganism, and the forbidden fruit. So the final girl is a term that's coined by Carol Clover. She's a, she is a, um, an academic who looked at horror film through a genre lens. In her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, it's a really awesome book if you're interested in the genre. So she did this research to answer the question, why are there so many women horror, horror movie survivors? Why is it always a woman that seems to come out of this? This is just like a smattering of the final girls in movies in some of them. The particulars of their genres might vary, for example... Um, Sydney Prescott obviously for Scream is, a, is more of a dark subversion of like a dark comedy subversion of horror tropes so she still follows the same rules though she is the final girl um, Alien obviously has some sci-fi elements that the other ones don't share so there's some, some minor um, narrative differences but overall they're following the same rules here um, none of these women come out of their ordeals the same they endure a lot of suffering so the questions we want to answer today are why does she survive how does she survive and why is the final survivor always a woman So the horror genre, like any other literary genres, has rules, which when you're writing or critiquing it, um, and in this case, this is the rules for how you survive the horror. Um, They can be satirized, they can be subverted, like we see in things like Scream or Cabin in the Woods, but they exist as the general boundaries that you're working with. Um, Many of the rules in horror, especially, are related to conservatively moral behavior. So no drinking, no drugs, no sex, uh, respect for authority. The implication is that there is a a mindless evil exists, horrible things, monsters, slashers, supernatural entities that exist, and they're attracted by certain behaviors. They'll punish the immediate circle down around the sinner, in this case, whoever does these behaviors or isn't paying attention. This is bringing down turmoil in the tribe, as it were, which really is the truest sin of Lucifer, is betraying the tribe. This is a very simple rule that's kept cultures alive, and a lot of taboos and boundaries you see in mythology boil down to this fear. Related to this is also the construct of what you guys have heard, the stranger in the bushes um, view of rape culture. So it's it's the implication that there's evil and harm, it's an outside force, it's not in your home circle, and that the victim is usually responsible for bringing that horror down on herself Um, through a lack of attention to her surroundings, through um, bad behavior choices. So it excuses the assailant. In this case, in horror, we excuse the demon, we excuse the slasher. We excuse the monster because that's just their behavior. That's what they do. It's very reminiscent of the boys will be boys attitude that exists in rape culture. So how does the final girl survive? Uh, She breaks as few of these rules as possible. However, the movie has decided to set up its rules, she obeys them. Uh, Modern films, again, like Scream or Cabin in the Woods, are going to break them specifically to point out, you're watching a horror movie, isn't this funny how we have these rules? Um, Doing the same kind of deconstruction we're doing today. Um, the final girl survives because she typically resists a lot of temptation. She's the one resisting the sex and the drugs and refusing to, um, she takes the killer or the monster seriously or the rumors of it, right? She's usually the first one the pan- or the uh, Cassandra problem. She's the first one to hear about it and nobody believes her, right? Uh, she ob- often will demonstrate maternal motivations or actions, literally protecting children like Ripley, like, uh, Hall- like Laurie Strode and Halloween. Like you're literally protecting children. Sometimes it's more metaphorical. Um, sacrificing herself. Uh, if you have a bad mother in the movie, watch what's going to happen to her every time, whatever that means. And the last question is, why is the survivor a woman? Um, Christianity, among other religions, of course, has promoted this patriarchal notion that women are the originators of sin and that we are all the ones who are all supposed to be fighting this natural relationship to evil and to sin that's drawn to us naturally. Uh, modern attitudes for sexual liberation are still reflective of this upper standard, even though we're supposed to be the secular community and we're a secular nation now that doesn't care about religion and doesn't care about this stuff, but we do. Um, it's it's the again the same thing in rape culture that it's on women to prevent rape that it's on our behavior to somehow avoid this evil coming down on us. But uh, final girls always do endure suffering during the movie. Uh, this could be reinterpreted as a myth-based message on the dangers of breaking the rules. This is a reinforcement of patriarchy. It's teaching women what's happened to them if they break these um, arbitrary behavior codes. They're never undamaged when the final girls come out of this. And this is a bleak but not inaccurate impression of the struggles many Wiccan face in a patriarchal world, stalked by predators for breaking arbitrary behavior codes and left to defend herself against them. So the second area I want to talk about is the vilification of paganism. So um, for anybody unfamiliar, paganism just refers to um, usually um, ancient or indigenous groups. Monotheism is just a single god. Paganism usually has um, a pantheon or a relationship where they don't have a single authority figure uh, coming down from the gods, it's usually a little bit more of a democratic process. But despite Christianity having dominated pagan traditions, especially in the Western world, there's still a lot of anti-pagan sentiment that Christianity does work to spread. So this atmosphere, uh, combined with the fact that not a lot of people know about pagan, about pagan cultures, it's not really taught well in our schools, um, it's, people just aren't familiar with pre-Christian traditions, and so it makes it a really easy source for writers to go to to make you feel creepy because you don't know a lot about it. It's a mystery. You know it's old, which freaks people out all the time. Babylon, Sumer, uh, older traditions of Judaism. These are popular areas for writers to go to because, again, people have heard of it. You've heard of Babylon, but you don't know anything about it. Um, it's just, just creepy enough, and, but real enough that people get a little freaked out that it might be real. So the deities of many dead cultures or pagan cultures that are still alive um, become Christian demons in our culture. So, as we discussed when we talked about Hades, pagan traditions and their gods aren't inherently evil in the same way that we think of demons. Like all traditions, they each had their own boundaries drawn regarding taboos and forbidden actions, and they weren't full of debauchery or anarchy, they just had different boundaries. So, these are some examples in horror movies of the anti paganism. Um, Pazuzu and the Exorcist, which is this statue here, is a, a real deity from Assyrian Babylonian culture. Um, he was in charge of the wind, the southwest wind, um, and disease. He, he was in charge of disease. Um, but he also was attributed to protecting women and newborn babies. So again, he, was a, he, he had a dual role like a lot of pagan gods do. Also, um, disease sucks, but do we consider it evil? When you think about the question of evil in Lucifer, do we consider a natural part of being alive evil? And that's a kind of a question we all have to answer for ourselves, but it is a question. Uh, Bagul in the movie Sinister, which was early 2000s, Ethan Hawke, um, they had a fictional Babylonian de- uh, deity they named Bagul. Um, it was a Babylonian origin. Um, his whole thing was that he just existed to eat the souls of children, which is a really popular propaganda tactic throughout history. Um, if you study especially any, like, Jewish tradition, that's a um, really popular one against Jewish people in Jewish communities is that they eat babies. Um, so, not a, not a great myth to make up, if I'm being honest. Um, Abizu in The Possession, which is an actual Jewish-based exorcism movie. Um, that demon was Lilith in Judaism. Uh, and she's also tied to an older Sumerian myth about um, called Abzu. It's like a sea of creation. Um, but again, do we consider an abyss or or early creation things evil in the same way? Um, Latin, the language of Latin, it shows up in every single demon movie. It doesn't matter how old this demon is or if this demon was ever met anybody that spoke Latin while it was its culture was reigning. It's always Latin um, that tells the audience, "Hey, guess what? There's a demon here, and supernatural things are happening." Um, it's a narrative signpost, basically, as a writer. It's, you're just telling the audience, this is real, this is creepy. Um, but if you think about it, why would Pazuzu, who existed thousands of years before Rome or Christianity or Latin was a thing, speak Latin to these priests? It makes no sense. Um, demonic names are really often just pulled out of dead pantheons. Writers go to Wikipedia, they pick up one random book on it and just pull those names out to name other demons. You see in Supernatural a lot, um, which is you know a great show, it's a fun show, but they do do that. They'll just pull... Um, random pagan deities from history and then name them, make them demons. Um, So that does affect how people view these cultures, unfortunately. It seems harmless, but it does affect it. Regardless of the demon's origin, too, it's always a monotheistic god that beats it. That's a big power play. That's a big reinforcement to let everybody know that. And it's it's weird how, especially exorcist movies, will kind of simultaneously uh, um, say that these other deities exist just to beat them. But it's always a, it's always a, the one true God that beats these guys, or that does the uh, clears the house, right? They're always representative of a of a monotheistic tradition. It's just another power play to show that paganism is the old way, and we're past that, and now we're to monotheism, which isn't that's not how evolution works, especially in culture. So this final one is the forbidden fruit, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. It's a really ancient literary device. It's it uses evolved for the horror genre um, with 20th century advancements. We see now a lot with technology and globalization themes. So, like, intellectual discovery is a big one. Um, obviously, Adam and Eve would be the most famous Forbidden Fruit. Example, maybe Pandora's box, too older. But this idea that there is something that is beyond us that we are not supposed to be accessing, and if we do, we're going to bring something down on us, right? So um, we've been doing, a, the last examples have been kind of a lot of movies. On this one, I'm going to do kind of a little case study, and we're just going to look at one movie in depth, um, and that would be Event Horizon, which is one of my favorites. I love this guys. Yeah. So for anybody who hasn't seen, I'm just going to run down the plot real quick. Um, it's set in the year 2047. Um, humankind's doing crazy space travel. Um, we've got, they've made this ship which has what's called a gravity drive. Um, it's supposed to get us to the nearest star system in light years, so it's, it's advancing our space travel. Um, it, but the ship on its maiden voyage in 2040 disappears. They open the gate. They disappear into it. They're gone for seven years, um, and then they just show up again in Neptune. No crew. Nobody's answering signals, right? It's this perfect little space horror setup. Um, so the film is following the search and rescue team, uh, led by Lawrence Fishburne as the captain, who are going out to answer to the stress call from this ship that's just reappeared out of nowhere um, space, and they take the uh, the creator of the ship with them, who's Sam Neill, who's awesome in it. So the forbidden fruit of this movie is the gravity drive itself. This is the sin of the movie. Uh, it represents not only a literal hellmouth, which if you've studied any or looked at any like, ancient cultures, Greeks especially, like pre-monotheistic stuff, the hellmouth, the idea that of a cave you could walk in, an actual entrance to hell, right? This is exactly that. Um, this is the the arrogance, the sin, the pride of humanity for meddling in science, for trying to break the laws of the universe. Literally, they're trying to break the laws of physics by traveling light years in seconds. Um, Ensign Justin, who is this character here in the in the front, um, he gets sucked into this gravity drive pretty early in the movie and returns catatonic. He tries to kill himself. He's all messed up because of the dark inside him from the other place that he doesn't want to go back to. So it's definitely representative early on of so they went. So they opened so some door to somewhere they shouldn't have. And the door they opened again. Sorry for the gore, but this is the Chaos Dimension. Um, the movie—it's a really—I'm really interested in uh, literary examples of hell. I like to see what people do when they build a hell and what they—what hell looks like to different different individuals. Um, this Chaos Dimension is a, a really crazy hell. Um, it's religious, There's never any mention of God. There's never any mention of any religious structure that we're familiar with. Um, there's no mention of traditional sins. Like nobody's an adulterer or a murderer or a rapist. There's none of that on this movie. Um, no one on the ship's a bad person. Like, the little bit you learn about these people, none of them are bad people. It's an accidental arrival, right? These guys are just doing their job. They're not trying to do anything. Um, but the implication is, of course, are had mankind not built this gravity drive and used it and tried to break the laws of physics, we wouldn't be here. Um, so this is the sin. And the chaos dimension is their punishment. It also reinforces this idea that there is a place outside of God's realm that's populated just by evil and horror. The movie exploits natural human reactions to the unknown, like fear and doubt, and to suggest that there are powers or borders that we should never cross, lest the worst happen. Uh, for Christianity, death is not is the only appropriate time you're supposed to contact any non-Earth realm. That's why there's you know no black magic, no Ouija boards, no seances. Christianity does not want you messing with any kind of spiritualism that might open you up to what they consider god realms or these kind of realms. Death's the only time you're supposed to... Access that, so breaching that, even if you didn't mean to, even if you're just the search and rescue team cleaning this up, um, it doesn't matter. You're going to get punished for it because it opens you—it opens you up to supernatural um, forces. And Christianity has a real problem with death in the first place. Death, in and of itself, is very evil to Christianity. That's why there's so much focus on Christ's um, beating of death. That you are—that you're not going—you're going to you're gonna live on and live forever. You're going to defeat death. Um, Christianity is not really just down with death in general. With the torture in this film, while terrific, it's not religious torture. Again, um, the force in the ship is indiscriminate. It's formless. You never see it's it's like it's in them. It's not a monster um, that you can interpret. It induces insanity um, and death by taking a a crew member's guilt and their weightiest guilt and using it against them. So it's kind of a really terrifying subversion of Christian sins because at least with Christianity, you have uh, the Ten Commandments. You have this structure that says here's how you avoid hell. But in the, the case of these guys, they're getting punished because they feel guilty. And who among us hasn't felt guilty? Like, we're, none of us are safe from this dimension. I guess if you're a psychopath that don't, doesn't feel guilt, maybe. And that would be an interesting um, thing to think about. Would, a, would somebody who doesn't feel guilty get punished by this realm the same way? Because really, it seems guilt's the only thing that makes these people suffer. And in the movie, um, we even have a Christian proxy. So if you'll see, uh, this is Pilot Smith. He's the one who gets the angriest when all this stuff happens and he's got a cross on. He is our, even though it's never explicit, we never talk about Jesus, we never talk about God, um, but he's very clearly the Christian messenger in this movie being like, hey, you broke the laws, you broke the rules, this is the price we were going to pay. So it's not hard to find modern-day examples of Christianity being averse to um, intellectual discovery and science curiosity, right? Um, But this is not even new behavior. Um, Even monotheistic traditions like um, Islam have developed intellectual stimulation. This Golden Age of Islam, which spanned from Portugal to Pakistan during the 8th and 13th centuries, most the Western world wouldn't exist without the advancements that were made here. And this was the Quranic injunctions. So religious injunctions placed high value on education and gathering knowledge. And Muslim government at this time supported scholars with a heavy monetary patronage as they were basically like the well-paid athletes of the ancient world. The Christian scholars in the dark ages in Europe came to the areas where Islam had control, just so that they could study with them because their own church was not supportive of their their intellectual discovery. So it's not that Christians don't want to discover stuff, it's that the Christian church as an institution has always tried to suppress scientific discovery, um, whereas even other monotheism doesn't have that same record. So that's why you see the Christian boundary in the forbidden fruit thing, especially in science stuff, punishing science for meddling and trying to break rules. So this is some other examples of Forbidden Fruit, right? Again, this is a really old trope, we've seen it a million times. It's not even existing in horror. The One Ring would probably be my biggest modern media example of the Forbidden Fruit. Powers we're not supposed to be accessing. Um, Pandora's Box is another old one, but you've got the Necronomicon from Evil Dead, um, the Ouija board that Reagan uses in The Exorcist, uh, the videotape in The Ring, the Puzzle Box from Hellraiser, the tapes from Sinister, you've got the... I, I couldn't find a picture of the actual artifacts from the basement of Cabin in the Woods, but those are all the same thing. Just a room full of forbidden <laughs> fruit that you're not supposed to touch, right? So it's just a constant message that there are limits on what you're supposed... your behavior, and you will get punished, again, if you break them. So many Christian denominations, science and intellectual exploration are discouraged because they're seen as challenging realms which still only belong to God. So William Alford wrote that myth is an ambush of reality. It's meant to upset our perceptions of safety and comfort, and fiction is where we play out these fears and fantasies, where we mess with our ideas of comfort in a safe environment. Modern horror myth, if following the same line, it shows that even in a world that's becoming more secular, or appears to be becoming more secular, uh, we're still in the West really concerned with Christian goals and ideas of salvation. Uh, We're also still unsatisfied and afraid of our ability to reach these goals. We don't really think that highly of ourselves, so that's what horror does for us. It just allows us to express a deep fear to acknowledge what we truly are and what we're capable of and see that maybe we're not worth saving. And that's the end for you guys. Yeah. If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, criticisms, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGR Podcast. Thank you! Sorry, I keep touching it, so enjoy that. It's going to be lovely on the recording. I think it's just a laziness too, honestly, like I think about Sinister, which I really like that movie, but it was really lazy to just make up a Babylonian demon that eats kids. That culture doesn't exist just to generate demons, like, that was one of the greatest empires that existed and it gave us writing and all sorts of other shit that we need and use and they just boil it down to bad guys for Christians, and that sucks.
0: It was titled The Crucible of... I should have fucking looked that up before I goddamn started the recording. Shit.